Hello and welcome to the inaugural podcast for Veterans for Responsible Leadership. My name is Jason Belcher. I'm an Iraq veteran. I served on active duty in the U.S. Air Force for 10 years. With us today, very appropriate for an inaugural podcast for the VFRL, is the founder and president of Veterans for Responsible Leadership, Dr. Dan Parkoff, who is an emergency room physician, a former Navy SEAL, and it's great to have you here today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jason. Happy to be here. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, so I thought we could start maybe for folks who may not have, uh, have may not be familiar with the organization, or this could be their first contact with it. Um, I thought maybe we could start by just letting you tell us a little bit about you know your background and then what motivated you to uh, to launch the organization. Absolutely, sure. So the uh, you know I'm uh, I'm a Yankee, right? I'm I'm a New England kid. Uh, grew up in Maine and then uh, Massachusetts. And, you know, families all scattered throughout the Northeast. But I was a Naval Academy guy, so um, I was a, a, an officer, a zero, as, uh, you know, my, my men reminded me on a daily basis. But the uh, uh, went to the Naval Academy and uh, graduated in 2001. Uh, was very lucky in to be selected for one of the special warfare spots to, to go to BUDS and become a SEAL. Um, at the time, this was three or four months prior to 9-11. So things were really quite a bit different when I initially uh, went to BUDS. There was a little bit of activity in, in Bosnia and Kosovo and things like that, but the, the mission set was very different than uh, you know what it became pretty quickly. So I was at BUDS during 9-11. Um, you know, I kind of remember uh, being in first phase, and you know, we canceled training for the day. And um, the the planes hitting the towers was, uh, you know, around six a.m. on the west coast. So it was, uh, we all saw it. They they said, you know, a plane hit the tower, and and we're everyone was kind of gathered around this one TV, and we all watched the second plane hit the tower. And um, you know, it was an interesting. It was like, well, okay, so what what happens now? And um, you know, went through training, and uh, the the war in Afghanistan ticked off. SEAL training's about yeah, eighteen months, give or give or take, um, and kind of finished my SEAL training basically exactly uh, as uh, as we invaded Iraq. So. There were a couple of guys who, from my class who, who actually just got plucked right away and went over and, and hit OIF-1, but I, I was not an OIF-1 guy. Um, went to an East Coast SEAL team and uh, did some workups there. Finally made it over to Iraq myself um, in 04 and uh, left there in 05. Um, did some other some other deployments. Um, did one down in Africa. Um, did some a brief, brief, uh, you know, jock spot in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, at the command post, handing you know, typing up powerpoints and that sort of thing. Um, and then ultimately uh, ended up getting out in 2009. Um, so I was on active duty for about eight years and went to medical school. Um, I used the GI Bill. I was lucky that I had the uh, the post, you know, was eligible for the post nine eleven GI Bill. Um, ended up going to med school down in Boston at Harvard. Um, was uh, like I said, fortunate enough to use the GI Bill, and uh, went into emergency medicine and got selected to. Uh, we there's this. It's 
like service selection at the uh, you know one of the one of the service academies, but you there's this thing in medicine called the match where you kind of put in, you know, your preferences, where you want to go for residency. And then you get ranked by all these different hospitals. And, um, I wanted to get out of Boston and kind of get off the East coast and, and New Mexico was this, uh, it sounded pretty exotic and they had a lot of, you know, penetrating trauma and, and, you know, kind of exciting medicine to do, uh, and spent four years out there in New Mexico, which were terrific. So around, the very end of my time in New Mexico, uh, you know, Trump ran for office. And at first, um, I was pretty, you know, I, I was never into Trump. But, you know, I, just like everyone else back in 2015, 2016, I was like, this this is going to fizzle out. <clears throat> you know, and, and I thought that he likely would, you know, lose in the primary and, you know, oh, there's no way he's going to win the general. And, you know, and then he won. And, uh, I was, I was opposed and I'd kind of thought about, I was opposed for all the reasons that, you know, other people were opposed, you know, the, I, I had two daughters at the time, I've got three now and, you know, I was, I, I didn't like the, the access Hollywood tape. Um, I thought some of his, you know, his, uh, just the way he would say things like, you know, this is an American carnage and this is the only, only I can stop it. You know, it was obvious to me that he was just an incredible narcissist. But I never really took a step to do anything about it until the actual original Michael Flynn scandal. And, uh, you know, Michael Flynn, he's a guy, you know, if you, if you recall, he, he was originally Trump's uh, national security advisor. And was forced to step down after being caught lying about, you know, talking to the Russians, um, to Mike Pence. And, uh, you know, at the time it was sort of this, looking back, it almost seems like this, uh, you know, relatively minor scandal compared to what Trump became. But for me, that was sort of enough to be like, I gotta try to do something about this. Um, and so it all started as a Facebook group. And I started this Facebook group. I called it Veterans for Responsible Leadership. Um, I kind of tracked down a few people who had some experience kind of organizing veterans. Uh, one guy, Ry Barcott, um, you know, and, and was encouraged by uh, a couple of now lawyers in the Facebook group to, to incorporate it and, uh, and turn it into a political action committee. So... The PAC thing got started in 2017. I just Googled, like, how, did, how do you make a PAC? And I, there's this Washington Post article about um, some high school kids who, who just did it as a joke. And, you know, they, they needed 100 bucks or whatever to file with the FEC, and they just created a PAC, and they, you know, would uh, run around their high school uh, trying to use their PAC to, you know, change the lunchtime and that sort of stuff. And I was like, hey, if, if high school kids can do this, I can do it. And, uh, you know, we, so we incorporated as, uh, a pack, which is called a, a 527 in the, in the, the terms. And, um, for, you know, months and years though, it was really me and a couple other guys sitting on our couch posting stuff on Facebook. Um, and the, the idea was not just to be anti-Trump, although we were, the idea was to, um, the idea was that military veterans, uh, we know the right way to act, right? Like we, we lived that, that's beaten 
into our head from, you know, your first day at Paris Island to your first day at Beast Barracks or whatever it is. And you are, um, you know, you're, you're, you're inculcated with these ideas of honor and truth and telling the truth and uh, putting others before yourself and service. And for me, those always were, you know, just really powerful ideas. And I was, you know, this is the way I want to live my life. When, and, and VFRL was an attempt to appeal to other veterans who may have been flirting with Trumpism um, to, to sort of, you know, go back to their roots, right? Like, hey, this guy is not one of us. You know, he's a, uh, you know, he's a, a guy who makes fun of John McCain for being captured. He's a guy who makes fun of disabled people. He's, you know, grabbing women by the pussy, you know, all these sorts of things that at the time I just, you know, I didn't think he would have the appeal that he did. And I thought I could remind people that this is what we believe. What we believe is, you know, honor and, and courage and, and justice and, and things like this. And, and, um, initially we talked about trying to, um, trying to, uh, you know, support both Republicans and Democrats. And, you know, we had no money. We never had any money, uh, in the beginning. We don't have much money now. But we, um, you know, we, we endorsed people. So our first uh, endorsements were this, uh, you know, this congressman, this Republican congressman I'd heard good things about, or, or this guy running, named Dan Crenshaw. And, uh, you know, I had one conversation with Crenshaw when he was running, and, you know, he said a few things that, you know, Trump can't lead. I remember vividly Crenshaw telling me, you know, I know that Trump can't lead his way out of a paper bag. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, this guy's kind of gets it. And, you know, on the Democrat side, we uh, endorsed this kid named Dan McCready down in North Carolina, who was running in North Carolina's district. We raised a little bit of money. We literally had a GoFundMe page, and we raised about, uh, give or take, about 10000 bucks. Um, some of it was, you know, my money I had donated personally. And with the 10000 bucks, we were like, okay, let's run some ads in North Carolina for Dan McCready. And that was kind of how we got our feet wet. And this was in 2018 in the midterms. We didn't have any... Uh, any ability to, you know, to, to run ads, uh, to create ads. We just did some kind of basically memes, um, uh, you know, of Dan McCready, you know, kind of some, some positive memes of him, uh, you know, some pictures of him, uh, you know, with his family and stuff like that. And, you know, this is what honor and courage and commitment look like. And, you know, we, we popped them up on people's Facebook feeds and in, uh, you know, in, the, in that area of North Carolina. And uh, I suspect we moved the needle not at all. Um, and, you know, what we really did was kind of learn, um, learn about what it means to try to do some of these things, to try to run political ads and, and what you need to do to, to, to do that sort of thing. Um, and so, you know, that was sort of the, the initial kind of, uh, you know, soup to nuts story of VFRL until until the 2020 election. But, um, you know, initially we wanted to be bipartisan. Um, you know, we wanted to support Republicans and Democrats. And one of our initial assumptions, which I think to an extent has turned out to be wrong, um, one of our initial assumptions was that we could appeal to veterans uh, as veterans. 
veterans and and get them to see the same things we saw. No, that's great. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I just uh, I had made a note. I wanted to go back and, and bring up something real quick. You mentioned being yeah. in, in, you mentioned being in training during nine eleven. Um, I was the first lieutenant assigned to the uh, 552nd Air Control Wing out at uh, Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma, and we actually had a jet flying over Washington that day on a training mission uh, that quickly, uh-huh. yeah, that quickly went, went real world. Obviously, uh, so I, that's it's uh, just for me personally. That's that's a very memorable uh, experience, and it, it dovetails nicely though with the the conversation with the, the discussion you had about values and about what we believe as veterans. Uh, you know, when you actually physically see your country under attack. Uh, it really brings home how how fragile sometimes that those values can be, and we have to defend those. And so I, I see this, and I hope other veterans do too, as as kind of an extension of that effort on the domestic front, uh, not with physical violence, but rather in the uh, in the arena of ideas. And where we want to reach uh, folks is in in that space, rather than uh, you know the kinetic area where we used to work overseas. Absolutely, and you know it's the. The challenge and the threat is, in some ways, similar and in some ways, you know, dramatically different, right? Like what, what we're what we're all worried about is, um, you know, this this uh, this idea that um, you know violence can come to America and uh, should be part of our political discourse, and that's you know insane to me. Right, like I do not want the United States to have a second civil war. I do not want the United States to have the troubles. I do not want any Timothy McVeighs. I don't want any Ruby Ridges. I don't want any of that. But in order to do that, right, in order to get to that point um, where we can, uh, you know, pass on to our children a society that's safe, but yet also. Um, respects the institutions of, of American democracy, we can't be passive. And so, you know, you're absolutely right. Like, you know, VFRL is a civilian organization, um, you know, that, that we're, we're trying to make, we're trying to win this fight. We're trying to win a struggle through peaceful means and, and to convince people to show them that there's, you know, a better way. I mean, our generation of veterans went to places like Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and the Philippines and Somalia and Chad and all these different places. And, you know, one thing we all have in common is we know what it looks like when, you know, a government doesn't function, uh, when people take things into their own hands. And, you know, I, I, pray and I hope that on, on both sides of the political spectrum, you know, veterans, um, veterans understand that. And, and that's, that's an assumption that um, I just, I just have to believe is, is true that nobody wants violence in American streets. And part of that is uh, with the core purpose of the organization, responsible leadership uh, is a big part of that. And, and not just in the sense of, of uh, the process and the institutions, but of, of trusting the outcomes that those uh, deliver to us as a nation. And so I wonder if you want to talk just a little bit about what you mean by responsible leadership uh, when it comes to uh, things that are happening here in the United States. You know, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, the, the, what Trump did is, you know, in my opinion, right? Like, you know, one way to look at Trump is there was this nut in the White House for four years. And, you know, 
if you, if you ignore COVID, right, like what, what really bad happened? You know, the United States is still standing, um, you know, all these sorts of things, you know, we're still a member of NATO. We still can, you know, do X, Y, and Z on the international scale. But the electricity is still running, right? But what Trump did is he set this precedent of um, behaving in, in an incredibly irresponsible manner, and it's being emulated, uh, you know, across the political spectrum, obviously much more on the, the MAGA right. But, you know, it's... Nobody used to talk like this to each other before Trump, right? Like, you know, nobody, I mean, you know, there were, uh, when Dick Cheney, I forget, he gave some speech on the, you know, on the, on the floor of the Senate, and he told the senator from Vermont, he said, fuck you to the senator from Vermont, and it was like front page news across, like, you know, everything it was this huge scandal, and it was unbecoming, and, you know, what, what's going, this was, I don't remember, 2000s, and, you know, that's, that would be nothing now if, uh, you know, if, if Ron Johnson said, you know, fuck you to another senator or, or, or something like that. Like, we, we've just gone so far away from where we were. Trump enabled all these, you know, wackos to just, uh, you know, get into office and, and treat it like it's WWF, where it's it's spectacle instead of, instead of governance. And that is in my opinion, you know, the, the biggest damage that he did is he allowed all these bad actors to, uh, to, to see that they could be successful by just being horrible people and being incredibly irresponsible. I mean, we have, we have people, a large swath of our Congress, um, you know, voted to overturn other states' elections, right? Like, they, you know, they, they signed an amicus brief. They, they um, you know, they're, they're, they saw what failed last time, and now they're taking steps to, uh, you know, prevent it from failing again. So um, I think if you're a small-D Democrat, right, if you believe in American democracy, whether you're a Republican or a, a Democrat or an independent or a Green Party member, whatever you are, if you believe in American democracy, it needs to be defended. It, it will not. It will not remain if we're passive. There are people out to get it. And and one of the things they're trying to do is specifically undermine voter confidence in the process itself. And you mentioned operations abroad, especially I think of Iraq and Afghanistan, where we, where we had elections there. We know from experience what happens when a large enough percentage of the civilian population does not recognize the outcome of election results as legitimate. Then when the trust in the government and the process reaches a certain point, you hit a critical mass. And at that point, violence against the, the current government sort of becomes acceptable and becomes more widely practiced, which is the last thing we want. We don't want that at all here in the United States. But I think the efforts of folks to undermine trust in the process is making it easier for people who do want to undertake violence to, to gain more recruits and more attention. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the violent actors, right, and, you know, the, the people who... Um, you know, they don't have the capability, right, to do what the Confederacy did, right? Like, so, so, you know, let's talk about the American Civil War for a second. So, you know, the American Civil War was in part possible because of, like, the, the time, cons the, the constraints of technology at the time, right? You know, I mean, 
the uh, you know they, they barely had railroads they barely had telegraphs like you know you could have a swath of the country just sort of break off that's not realistic um in in 2022 um what is realistic is something akin to you know what we saw in places like afghanistan like a, like an insurgency you know um there could be, uh, you know, a Timothy McVeigh that comes again. You know, there could be, um, you know, you see all these anti-government uh, forces at work. And, you know, there are aspects of the government that, you know, everyone, nobody likes to pay taxes, right? Like nobody, you know, likes it when, when the government, uh, uh, you know, we feel that they've overstepped something. But it has a necessary, it has a necessary purpose in a, in a nation with 330 million people. Like you, you can't have an anarchy, right? And so, you know, a lot of the people who have flirted with violence rhetorically, you know, these folks like, uh, everyone from Tucker Carlson down to, you know, the, the leader of the Proud Boys and, and, and the Oath Keepers and things like this. It's amazing. And it's scary how many of them are veterans. And the, you know, this, this has been studied, um, you know, the, the times when you have an uptick in political violence um, in American history are, are almost always immediately after prolonged conflict. So, you know, that we, talk, we talk about the Klan, you know, the, the Ku Klux Klan was incredibly successful as a terrorist organization, right? It, it kept black people from voting for close to 80 years in parts of the country. And the, you know, the Klan came out of the Civil War, you know, you got Nathan Bedford Forrest, he was a, a Confederate cavalryman, and, you know, the the Klan went through several iterations. The second kind of iteration of the Ku Klux Klan, um, you know, in the 1920s, when something like 10% of the state of Indiana was were, were Klan members, um, when the Klan members were uh, the largest single faction of the Democratic National Convention, at the time, this was uh, a clan that had been kind of rebirthed by a Spanish-American war veteran. And then the modern clan, you know, in the 60s, the Mississippi burning clan uh, was largely driven by Korean and, and World War II veterans. And so now we're coming out of this period of 20 years of warfare fought by an all-volunteer force, mind you, right, which has, to, oh, you know, that's an entire an entire episode uh, we should do sometimes talking about the ramifications of an all-volunteer force, both good and bad. Definitely. But, you know, you have, a, you have an all-volunteer force, and no one's really sure what 20 years of telling uh, a segment of the population that you have to keep going to war over and over and over again, and you're special, and you're great, and you're wonderful uh, for doing so, and uh, and you're right, and, and you know, and, and there's all these kind of, uh, and then, you know, you plop them back down in the society, the war's over, and what do they do with that, right? Like, we don't, we don't really know, but it, it, you know, it worries me. Uh, and it doesn't just worry me, it worries, you know, a lot of people who've studied this issue. So um, we're, at a, we're at a tough time in our democracy. We really are, where, where uh, emotions are running high. Um, you know, we all wish people could step back, but we've got this problem of, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a perfect storm, if you will, of, um, of veterans who, are, who have used violence to get their way before, 
uh, now in a nation awash in firearms, um, you know, coming back from from war. So, it, you know, it, it there's so many things that our nation needs to do to pass on to our children a better place. Um, but it starts, in my opinion, uh, you know, uh, veterans have to take a lead a leadership role in this. And one of the uh, one of the uh, pillars of the organization of VFRL is to protect the integrity of elections and America's faith in the process. So I'm glad you brought up history, especially the Civil War, because we've had uh, mail-in ballots have been used since that time period. So, you know, during Civil War, during World War, during Great Depressions, during natural disasters, other pandemics, we've always managed to still have elections and people respected the outcome. I'm not saying you have to like the outcome. That's a very different thing. Maybe your, sure. your party or your Absolutely. candidate lost. But they trusted the process, and they, st- they should still trust the process today because the fact is that voter fraud is actually very rare in the United States. And all of the allegations that were made in 2020 have been exhaustively investigated, and none of them turned out to be true. So people should have, should still have a high degree of trust in the process in the sense that the vote count reflects the will of the people. That's what they voted for. Maybe you don't like the candidate that won, maybe you don't like the party that won, but that's the will of the people, and that has to be respected. And that's a, that's a core part of the American system of governance. And going forward, we have to protect that. Hundred percent. So there's this guy Stuart Stevens, uh, and Stuart is on our board. So he's on the board of, of VFRL and has been an incredible help um, over the years. And Stuart lives up here in Vermont now, and he's a he's a winter sports aficionado. That's how he ended up in Vermont. But he's a Mississippi guy, and was a uh, Republican political consultant for for decades. Uh, worked a bunch of races in Mississippi. Um, was um, ended up being Mitt Romney's. He, he worked on the Bush campaign. He was Mitt Romney's uh, chief strategist for Romney's run, uh, and he was like a never Trump guy. Uh, you know, anti Trump from the very get go. He thought it was ridiculous. I was able to track him down up here, but one of the things that Stewart says that has always stuck with me is that for a democracy to work, you have to be willing to lose. Right. Like you have to be willing, you have to be okay with like, all right, you know, we lost this round, we'll get him next time. Right. You know, uh, maybe this candidate wasn't that great or, you know, people are really concerned about unemployment right now or, or whatever it is. But you have to you have to be willing to lose and to keep your faith that you can achieve policy goals, uh, you know, through negotiation, compromise and winning elections. I mean, my. I've said this before, but my take on it is our loyalty cannot be, certainly not to an individual, certainly not to a political party. Our loyalty has to be to the rules of the game. Um, I say that over and over. We just, we are loyal to the rules of the game. We are loyal to the United States Constitution. We are loyal to state law. We are loyal to, um, you know, the election process. Um, The whole idea of voter fraud uh, being, um, you know, a serious problem is is a, a direct attempt to uh, subvert elections by, by decreasing people's trust in them. Um, you're, you're exactly right. It's, it's, uh, it's cynicism weaponized. 
And that's a nice segue into the uh, the one six committee hearings, which of course that's that's what's at the heart of that is you have yeah. you know a, a sitting president very much trying to get people to not follow the rules and to not follow the process and to disregard the Constitution simply because doing so would have helped him personally uh, and him politically. Right. Yeah, absolutely. The the one six com- committee hearing. So I mean, so many, so many thoughts. So much to talk about. So much to unpack there. But at its heart, it's a democracy trying to defend itself, right? So it, you know, the one six committee hearings, uh, which, you know, the, the thing that the the one six committee is is has done that is very smart is. It's all it's all Republicans. It's not Republicans necessary on the committee. It's Republicans talking, right? They're using you know it's Bill Barr, right? It's Bill Barr's testimony. It's um, you know it's the testimony of people who worked in the Trump White House. It's the testimony of Ivanka. You know, it's the testimony of uh, you know Jared Kushner, right? These are people who. Uh, you know, clearly wanted Donald Trump to win the election, but under oath, when you ask them point blank, you know, was this all a bunch of hogwash or was was there something to it? They're like, yeah, it was all bullshit. Like we 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 all knew it was bullshit, and um, you know, and, and there was one man who just wanted to keep pushing it and keep pushing it. And, and you know, if you look at what the one six committee hearing is is trying to do it's trying to you know people are like they're they're political hearings well of course they're political hearings they're, the goal is to is for people to learn the truth of, of what happened to our democracy and and why you know hundreds of people uh raced into the capitol to try to lynch the vice president which you know, it hasn't happened since the War of 1812 when a foreign power did it, right? So, you know, it's, um, they're, they're powerful, uh, uh, historical, and, um, and to be frank, the, the polling that I've seen has shown that they're, they're resonating with people. Um, they've, uh, you know, the, the Republicans, um, you know, the MAGA Republican wing keeps saying uh, they're, they're nothing They're You know, no one's paying attention. Who's watching these? Well, the fact is a lot of people are watching them and uh, they're watching them. Uh, centrists are watching them and even people on the right are watching them. And the testimony has been has been damning. Um, you know, it's it's people from the Trump White House saying to, you know, saying to the camera, saying to the members of the one six committee under oath, this was a plot by the president of the United States and his absolute closest inner circle to uh, prevent the peaceful transfer of power. No, you're absolutely right. There's there's certainly enough uh, just with the one six committee to do a, a, a two or three podcasts yeah. uh, just on that. Yeah. Uh, no, no question about it. One thing I think is is good from the committee hearings is all of this is now part of the official record. Um, so yeah. they they now have more information at their disposal than anybody else. So no other organization or individual has the amount of data and information on one six than this committee does, and that's part of the record. So future generations will have access to it, and I'm, and I'm sure they'll discuss it, maybe argue about what it means, but it'll be there. So I, I would argue that that by itself is a degree of justice. It's certainly not a full measure, but at least it's a sure. good start. No, it's a good point. It's it's. Uh... You know, you, you hear the phrase, uh, um, you know, the victors write history kind of thing, and, and there's truth to that. I mean, the, I mean, I still 
every here and there, um, you know, we'll learn something about American history, and I'm like, wait, what? Why did I never hear about that before? You know, um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of a, a contemporary example. So, you know, even like the Tulsa race riots, like I didn't learn about that in elementary school. I didn't learn about that in high school. I didn't learn about that in college. You know, it's only in the last couple of years that uh, I learned about that. And, you know, there are, there are aspects of our history that um, certainly we've, we've tried to, uh, um, if not cover up, then at least to, you know, at least uh, to, to put our best, best foot forward and, and not talk about very much. And, you know, you're, you're exactly right. Um, this puts it in the record, right? Like there are congressional hearings. This is, um, it's going to be impossible for historians, future historians, to, to not document that this this happened and this this democracy tried to defend itself. I agree with that, and, and even as a historian, which is that's how that's my training. Uh, you know, there, it's yeah. such a big field. I mean, you're, it's a lifelong pursuit of learning. So there's there's always going to be new things that you learn. You never reach a point where you say, "Oh, okay." I mean, not the, the undergrad or at the masters or even at the, the doctoral level. You never get to the point where you just say, "Oh, I, I know everything now. I can stop. Uh, I, I, can, I can stop learning." No, it's a, it's a lifelong right. pursuit. Uh, so it's, it's good to keep learning. Um, absolutely. You know, it, but you're. You're right on with the the one six committee. Um, I think, you know, one of our big problems is we're so siloed right now, and and everyone is kind of siloed in their their information bubble, and you know there are things that uh, just literally would not get played on on uh, you know Fox News or Newsmax or OANN or, or or whatever, and and the opposite is true as well. Right. Like there are things that, uh, you know, MSNBC is not going to cover. Right. And so, um, you know, we're siloed and, you know, we've become, uh, you know, blue and red and and the the true independent, the true centrist, uh, you know, can feel politically homeless. I mean, I'll watch, you know, CNN sometimes and I'm like, oh, God, this is terrible. And then, you know, I'll try Fox News for a second. I'm like, oh, my God, this is even worse. You know, so the the um, the information suddenly, if you only get information from one side, you know, if something happens and then uh, you know Tucker Carlson says something about it, and then the rest of Fox News says something about it, and then Newsmax says something about it, and then Trump tweets about it. If that's all you're getting, you know, your information from, uh, you know, of course you're going to think like that, right? Like you know, if you if if I can choose the information that someone consumed. I could, I could pretty, I could control them, right? Like that's that's dictatorship one hundred and one, right? Is you know you control the information and you can control what people do, um, you know. And, and the the fact that there's so much out there now, and you can just go down these rabbit holes and just continuously find, you know, be fed by algorithms things that you already agree with um it's it's a recipe for stratification of, of a society but i think that's 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 what makes organizations like vfrl even more important is to offer 
folks who are either reading or listening to or consuming information to offer them a perspective that's grounded in fact, grounded in experience, especially from those who have who have lived up to the oath of serving their country. So we, you know that when you hear them talking, that's someone who's walked the walk. They're not just talking the talk. A lot of folks out there are doing what I would call monetizing disinformation, right? It's a big market. You can make a lot of money. Oh, you can make tons of money selling books that say that the election was stolen uh, because that's what a certain, you know, demographic wants to hear. I mean, so the marketplace, Absolutely. you know, works against you. Absolutely. You're, you're right on. I mean, the, you know, the, the amount of money in politics, and I say this as a guy who started a pack. okay? The amount of money that is thrown around in politics is gobsmacking, right? Like, we're talking, you know, there are Senate races I'm interested in that to do it right, you know, to do it right and to really play in a Senate race in a big state, to play in a California Senate race, to play in a Missouri Senate race, to play in an Ohio Senate race, you need $10 million, right? Like, to even, even just get up to the table. Well, even here right? in Kentucky. And, yeah, yeah, totally. You know, like, when Mitch ran against, uh, you know, Amy McGrath, uh, Amy McGrath raised, you know, millions upon millions of dollars, right? Like, and, and you know, she ended up losing, and, and I like Amy. She's a fellow Naval Academy grad and, and all that stuff. But, like, it's just the amount of money that gets, you know, moves around, and, and it, it adds up so quick. You know, these political consultants, um, you know, they make, they make a killing. Right, like even the ones you agree with, even the guys you agree with the most with, they're pulling down at a minimum six figures. You know, like they're all making bank. Um, the exception being VFRL, by the way. I just have to say, uh, I have never touched a cent from VFRL. Neither of any of the other officers. We have one paid employee. She's terrific. Um, but the, uh, you know, the uh, some of the organizations we, you know, even that we work with. Um, People make a lot of money. You know, it costs money to do these things. You want to run a poll in District X? Okay, that's going to be, you know, $30,000, right? Like, that. you know, these are these are big expenditures. And if you can capitalize cynically on someone's belief that the election was stolen, just keep feeding them, you know, garbage that confirms that belief, you can you can skim money from them. That's a, that's a fact, and that's what's going on today. You know, Dinesh D'Souza uh, is making legitimate, like, propaganda films out of any dictatorship uh, about how the election was stolen, and it's, it's, it's a play to line his own wallet. I, I totally agree. That's actually the, the example I was thinking of, when I, or at least the most prominent <laughs> yeah. example I was thinking yeah. of when I mentioned that. Yeah, no, it's, it's I mean, you know, it goes back to... Um, you know, back in the, I think it was the 90s, you know, there's this effort, there's McCain-Feingold, there were these, you know, kind of efforts to, uh, you know, limit the amount of money and campaign finance reform and, and all this sort of stuff. The American political landscape would be 180 degrees different if, uh, you know, we had public financing of elections, right? Like, if you just got a check from the government for, you know, whatever, a million bucks for a Senate race and you get a check for a million bucks and that's it. That's all you can have. Um, it would be, it would be entirely different. And, uh, you know, it all, it all goes back to, to DC United, but, the, um, or sorry, Citizens United. Um, you know, but the, uh, DC 
United's like a soccer team or something. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, but the uh, you know that that Supreme Court case that you know uh, money is free speech um, is it just changed things. Uh, the amount of money in politics is obscene. Well, we like to think that. Um because we live in an internet age that that's level the playing field because anybody can upload a video or, or make a recording and, and it could be seen by everyone, which is theoretically true. It could be seen by everyone, but the reality is we know is very different. Television is still the king when it comes to advertising and that's a very expensive platform to use. And that's where a lot of that money goes uh, for candidates is to just saturate uh, marketplaces with advertisements over and over again, and, and that budget just balloons to what I would call ridiculous proportions. Uh, you, can, you can see ads running. I mean, each time you see one of those 30-second spots that over and over and over and over again, I mean, that's a significant chunk of change just to run that ad once, and it's going you know all the time, seven days a week. So, I mean, the, the money being spent is just ridiculous. Absolutely. And, you know, television's one. I mean, the other thing, you know, I'll, I'll let everyone in on a little, you know, how the sausage gets made. So there's this, you know, there's this metric called brand recall list, which, um, you know, people use to measure, you know, are people looking at your ads, basically. And, you know, every time you're scrolling through Facebook or you're scrolling through, uh, you know, Twitter or whatever it is, and you don't even have to click on it. Right, like clicks are great. Like advertisers love clicks, but if you just slow down for a second and you're stare, you know, you you don't even think you're like I'm not going to click on this, but I'm just going to check it out. You know, you just stare at the ad for, uh, you know, Nike shoes or whatever. That information gets sent back. They're like, oh, he paused here. He looked at these Nike shoes, and you know what? You're you're about to start getting a lot of ads for Nike shoes. You know, and so it's that's how good it is, and you know that's both a that's a blessing as uh, an organization that's trying to reach people. Um, it's a curse as a society that, uh, you know, is, is uh, dealing with limited attention span and algorithms that, um, you know, are, are information siloing. So, you know, people know, um, you know, computers know, algorithms know what you're interested in. They can sniff that out just by being on the internet. You know, it, sometimes, you know, it's kind of funny. Sometimes you'll even let's say there's some ad for something you're completely not interested, but you know, you're scrolling through something on your computer and then, uh, you know, your, your, uh, your kid says, Hey, you know, can we go outside? And you know, you, you paused accidentally on, you know, an ad for, I don't know, uh, new lawnmower. You're about to start getting new lawnmower ads. You know, it's, um, it's amazing how good these, you know, how they can find you and, and, uh, and, get into get in front of you get yeah. your eyeballs on that yeah government surveillance is nothing compared to what the private sector has they're way behind um it, yeah. it's it's that's another topic i mean there's so many different things going on this year i think we're up to our i don't know what are we up to a third or a fourth once in a lifetime event in the last three years already so right. there, there's there's more there's all kinds of more stuff that uh, that can be each one of those are worthy of a uh, of an individual episode and we'll certainly get to those in the future uh but you know here we are it's 2022 so like what would your message be to folks that are listening and, and maybe thinking about uh, joining or participating uh, this year, what can they do or what should they do? Absolutely. So number one, make sure you're registered to vote. You have to vote. That is the currency. So what you, you know, what all of this, this entire, you know, just machine to get in front of your eyeballs is to try to convince you to go in and pull the lever for their guy. Um, and so if you're, you know, 
it's it's now July. Now is the time to make sure you're registered to vote. Uh, make sure you're registered to vote and come up with a plan for voting. Um, similarly, one of the things VFRL did was we spun off a terrific organization. It's a nonprofit. It's called We the Veterans. And they have as one of their core missions getting veterans to the polls to be poll workers. Your average poll worker is in their 70s, okay? So, you know, it's time. If you if you don't want to do anything public, you don't want to, you know, go on TV for VFRL, go work in your local polling place and just be there. Be a part of your community. Be civic-minded. Take that time. Take that one day in November and go there and, you know, and just keep the wheels on the bus. Um those are two things you can do. If you have money, I mean, donations are great. If you have time, donations of time are great. We're about to start, uh, you know, the, the districts that we're interested in today are the candidates we're interested for this cycle. Uh, we're about, we need volunteers. Um, we need volunteers who will do postcards. We need volunteers who uh, potentially would do phone banks. All of these things are things that, you know, you can do over the next couple of months to try to make an impact in your democracy. This is your democracy. It's it's not mine. It's it's you know, it's 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 nobody else's to tell you what to do with. Um, but it needs to be, you know, it's just like a plant. You got to water it, man. So work at the polls, find a way to help with a candidate you like, find a way to help with an organization you like. And, uh, and and take your oath, which had no expiration date, you know, seriously. You know, you're, you're a citizen of this country, and citizenship has responsibilities. I think that's great. And there's there's even been stories out there about poll workers, about localities that are facing shortages uh, of poll workers, critical shortages, uh, and others where they've been, where poll workers have been threatened. So, I mean, that's sort of a critical area that needs help. So I'm really glad to hear that. that that's, a, that's, a, yep. that's, a, that's a great effort, and I, I wish that nothing but success. And I hope folks listening to that, uh, I'm actually, I, I did not know about that particular effort. I'll, I'll go see if there's a way to get uh, get involved because I know my polling spot here is it's you know a mile and a half down the road, and every time, yep. just like you said, it's it's uh, it's it's thinly manned to put it mildly. <laughs> yep, yep. It's it's a simple way to help, and and you know the idea is, um, you know, let's get the it's it's our generation's turn to you know kind of step up and and run this thing right like we're we're all you know in our late 30s 40s early 50s you know the the GWAT generation it's our turn to run this thing and we've got to leave this better than we found it for our kids i absolutely agree with that i think that's very true and uh, of course there's like we said a lot of other topics that we'll get to in future shows but we're about out of time for today so any, any closing thoughts or final comments that you wanted to make on our uh, inaugural podcast here no, guys, I, I, I look forward. We're going to hopefully have uh, a bunch of folks who are affiliated with us, uh, you know, kind of give their origin stories. I think this is going to be a really fun thing um, to do every couple of weeks. And, uh, Jason, I want to thank you right off the bat for, for volunteering to do it. You know, I say this to, to anyone who volunteers, but this is citizenship. This is taking your job as a citizen seriously and using your talents and your time to make this country a better place so a sincere thank you to you my pleasure to do it and, and likewise thank you for for starting the organization and, and stepping up and leading the effort to get it going uh you know a lot of times six fifty percent of success is just showing up and so the, for to folks who do that uh, i think they deserve our um, our thanks uh, not just as individuals but as a country 
Yeah, thanks, Jason. I appreciate it, man. This was fun. We'll do it again soon. All right. Thank you very much. Take care. Okay, that was Dr. Daniel Barkoff, founder and president of Veterans for Responsible Leadership. You can find us online at vfrl.org or on Facebook. And we thank you for listening. Hope everyone enjoyed the podcast today. Look forward to many more in the future. And I hope everyone has a great day. Thanks. Take care.